Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from high above Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York at the law offices of HBA. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. My guest today is Justin Bridges, photographer and visual director. Justin, thanks for joining us. Of course, my pleasure. So you've been in fashion for many years, uh, but before being in the creative field and, and specifically in fashion, you were an equity trader at Goldman Sachs, one of the premier investment banks on the planet. Uh, describe for our listeners how you made that pivot and what led to it. Sure. Yeah. I when I started when I moved to New York, it was 2008. Uh, the probably the heart of the financial crisis. Right. Um, I I moved to New York to be on Wall Street to tackle finance to change my family tree. And when I got there, life was a lot more chaotic than I had ever imagined. Even when I worked there for internships, um, and so I found this like sort of uh, unhappiness starting to settle in about midway through my two year analyst program, and I started sort of looking for things to you know, get happy about or get involved in. And it just so happened that obviously with a little bit more disposable income, I could go shop. And so I would spend every single weekend walking from uh, Saks to Barney's to, you know, Bergdorf's and just, you know, window shopping, a little bit of spending. Um, and I caught the bug. I was like, I was in love with clothing. And, and that sort of thing married to the idea that I picked up a camera in college mm-hmm. sort of gave me this idea, like, what if, what if I pick up a camera and do something fun with it? Could I make something happen? Um, and so I spent a lot of time on the weekend starting to shoot friends, just walking the streets, taking pictures of things. And when I would get into work, my boss would notice how unplugged or like, disinterested I was with projects that were assigned me. Um, and she, she finally pulled me aside. She became a mentor of mine and she said, you know, what's going on? What, you know, you seem to be so happy about all these photo projects you tell me about, but you never have anything exciting to say about the work. And I said, Hey, look, I think I'm in love with this, this hobby that I have. And you know, it's hard for me to get engaged here. And she pulled out this napkin and she was like, let's write a list of pros and cons. If you were to go do this thing, what would be the pros? What would be the cons? And all the pros stacked up in terms of creativity, but on the con side, the only thing that I wrote down was money. (laughs) And she told me, and I know this going to sound a bit cliche, but she said, if you follow your heart, the money will come. And at the time I was like, whatever, but the, the seed was planted and, um, I just couldn't get rid of that notion anymore. And so when my two years was up, I didn't really seek to get rehired. I did look for other banking jobs in full honesty, mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted to learn other skill sets and I didn't know if I was ready to go full, full-time photography. Yeah. And so that's what sort of was the impetus of like just getting out there and, and, you know, following my heart. Um, and then I finally got a temp job at, uh, J crew worked in merchandising and planning. Then I got, uh, finally got an interview at Saks Fifth Avenue and ended up being in the buying office. And so I just sort of followed the fashion further and further away from numbers. Obviously the first two jobs were numbers heavy, but then I went to PR. That's where I uh, worked with this brand called public school. And then eventually I worked for another photographer and then that was it. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, we've both worked with public school yes. <laughs> uh, for, for many years at this point. Um, maybe describe that culture at Goldman Sachs. Again, one of the premier banks that has ever existed. And, um, 
you know, how perhaps that led to some of the dissatisfaction, if I'm, you know, don't, don't let me mischaracterize sure, sure. it, but, but what was that culture like? I would say, you know, the one thing I did love about um, Goldman culture was the, the sort of this, this pillar of excellence, um, having a, probably one of the smallest footprints for a, a global investment bank, right. but outperforming everything on the street. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing about the culture that I did love. But that sort of excellence driving also sort of hurts you in the back end, too, because if you if you don't fold in nicely with what is expected of you, whether it's making sure your, your face is shaved clean every day or, you know, wearing a little bit more flamboyant clothing, then you're chopped down very quickly. Um, and so there's this idea of personality that's supposed to be shown in the work, but not in the personal aesthetic or not in um, the way that you would you know, carry your lifestyle, um, that was a little bit sort of, um, claustrophobic for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also never really loved the whole authority thing and, you know, everybody's your boss. I mean, there's a tier system in, Indeed. <laughs> you yeah. know, a caste system. Yeah, so there's a caste system. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I hate to sound a little bit like a millennial, but I do see a little bit of that that shine through where you, you know, you, I could see what revenue I was generating, but because I didn't fall in line, I didn't get the the spoils that were due. And so that kind of thing sort of gets in you and it just festers and festers and festers. The other part that I I wouldn't say is necessarily a Goldman thing, but during that financial crisis time, you know, we're looking up at CNBC all day being called Vampire Squid. And for a young guy like me who, you know, loves to be liked, I mean, it's kind of hard to sit there and watch and then also be maybe a little unsure or am I contributing to a problem? Am I, you know, am I part of this? Um, and so all those things I think came together. I will say the culture at Goldman wasn't as bad as what I've heard at other banks. I'm sure there were, you know, bad moments for a lot of people. Um, but my group and my team was awesome. And I, I actually did like what I was doing. It's just that it just didn't align with how how I saw myself on a day to day basis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, perhaps one of the largest, pros on that scale uh, on that list that you made was that sense of self-actualization that you were going to be pursuing a career that you really felt drawn to but but maybe more on on the culture not of Goldman specifically but but you know the white collar world um, because as a lawyer obviously I'm I'm part of that world and uh, I practiced at, at a big law firm Sherman and Sterling and um, you know, I, I too really appreciated that kind of best-in-class type nature of the approach to the work. Um, Sherman is, is rather large, but Goldman, you know, a firm, a law firm that comes to mind is, is like Wachtell, right, right. which is similarly small, but, you know, packs quite a wallop when it comes right, right. to M&A engagements in particular. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that, that you weren't able to express yourself through dress. And I know you and I geek out about menswear all the time. Um, There certainly in those environments are certain items that carry with them a bit of legacy, uh, a bit of entitlement. Uh, Here I'm talking about those, those patriarchal vestiges like the suspenders with critters on them, right? Hermes ties. Hermes (laughs) ties or the contrast collar, Mm -hmm. dress shirt, uh, cufflinks, things like that. Um, do you agree that those things both communicate a sense of, of where you are in the pecking order and that to wear them too early is, is absolute, you know, career death. suicide. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I would have to agree. I mean, I remember, um, 
two instances for me where I actually went shopping with an associate above my pay grade uh, and we stopped in Hermes and I was going to buy a tie as well. And they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not time for you yet. And, uh, and you know, I was glad to have that guidance. The other, the other thing that I noticed, and this was back to sort of my first, uh, your first question is one day I came in, you know, we would go out a bit, you know, I was young yep. and, uh, I came in one morning with like the fresh stubble and one of the associates on the desk was like, you need to go to the bathroom right now and Dude. get that shave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I just remember being so like, uh, felt so distant in the moment, like what is going on? How am I part of this? Yeah. But yeah, there are, there are traditional vestiges of that world. Uh, and they, they denote pecking order. They denote, um, an understanding of where you're at in that culture. Um, and you know what? I don't hate them all, actually. You know, I think I think there are there in within different workplaces, banking, law, um, you know, accounting, all these other worlds. There are sort of standardized ways that people see themselves and project their sort of confidence and, and belonging in that world. And banking does have this one thing that happens to be, you know, a little bit more, uh, I, I guess, braggadocious and, and money feeling. Mm-hmm. Um and those things aren't horrible. I think they get a lot more shine now that there's social media and there's people pointing out. You know, one of the things that I loved wearing when I was in banking was the was the fleece vest with no sleeves. I mean, that thing <laughs> was, was my favorite. It was just a Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, exactly. And now people yeah. are hating on it. There's an Instagram about it. Um, at, you know, Midtown, it was whatever. Jacob Gallagher that wrote it. it was, oh yeah, it was, it was a great book, piece, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and and so there's 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 things like that that will probably always stand the test of time. And then there's other things that probably might should go away. I, the contrast collar thing is a staple of another, <laughs> just another era that might not survive any longer than it yeah. has. Um, but I think, you know, the business, ca- business casual, the, the certain ties when you're in going into real meetings, cause most of us or most of us did, uh, dress business casual on a day-to-day basis. Right. You know, well, let's, let's talk about that and we will get into photography. Yeah. I promise. Yeah, No, of course. Um, but with the business casualization, right. Of, of, of menswear, uh, really starting a couple of decades ago, but now in, in full throat, right? Mm-hmm. It is common to see basically everybody on the street or everybody on park in the 50s, tieless, right. uh, but in some sort of a uniform. Uh, that vest is, is, uh, is, is omnipresent, <laughs> right? Uh, what do you think about how that affords men an opportunity to express themselves in these places where traditionally it's been sort of the smoke-filled room, and if you're not dressed like your grandfather, then you're kind of out. Uh, And do you see many men doing it right? That's a great question. I I think what the the problem with sort of the standardized uniform vibe on in a lot of sort of corporate environments is that it sort of strangles the creativity out or at least uh you know something i learned at Saks, uh you know it pushes that creativity into accessories and and small leather goods and things like that it doesn't give you the chance to wear the whole ensemble but it allows you to you know pull out the billfold or pull out the handkerchief or or the or the cufflinks and something like that to show a little bit of that personality and pizzazz you just have to be very careful about how you do it when i worked at Saks, one of my one of one of the things that my buyer taught me which i thought was incredibly um uh i, I guess uh, visionary was that he was always thinking about the guy coming in from Connecticut, scrolling through his BlackBerry, just trying to get through his emails, deleting half the stuff. And he said, what we need in every um, assortment online, because I worked in sax.com is we need that 
blackberry stopper the thing he's gonna scroll past and be like okay i might i might i've woken out of my slumber right um and the thing about that is that the one thing we have to remember or that i try to remember when i think about all these business environments is that you might not be able to do as much as you'd like to at work, but people actually are starting to show that they have a spirit of creativity and personality outside of work. So that same hedge fund guy might only show his personality in the nice, like, you know, cobbled shoes or a nice, like, handkerchief coming out of the blazer. Um, but on the weekends, he's doing, a, he's being a little bit more daring. Mm-hmm. And so I think even though we are constrained in the workplace, we're finding ways to still get that sort of peacocking done in some shape or form in our lives. Right. Now, how about you work with a ton of menswear brands? You, you shoot a lot of them. Uh, you, you advise them on visual direction. Uh, you may even assist the merchandising department for all I know. Um, <laughs> athleisure, which is sort of a ha- – or, or, or streetwear. I mean, some yeah. of these terms are really laden with a lot that's – inappropriate public school being a great example of that in that you know they make tailored clothing i i I could i have a public school gray suit that looks a lot like this that's flannel um but but to that clearly non-tailored look uh can men pull that off in a white collar world is that being worn at goldman in ways and if so how you know, the, I feel like the closest I've seen people s- sort of get into that world, and I did this a little bit myself, not not knowing whether or not that got me in trouble. Um, but you know, I think of the the designer that comes to my name uh, comes to name uh, immediately is like a Tom Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you're not doing an aggressive silhouette all the time, or you know, you know, you Tom Brown, you have the gray flannel suit, but it's cropped high at the at the ankle or the sleeves are a little short. And there's so many excellent ways and examples of doing the tailored look in a way that's very true to you or true to self um, without causing alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think people are able to operate in this in this white collar environment. You know, I think a lot of who you're, there's, there's corporate culture, then there's your boss. Um, and I think there are ways to navigate around your direct reports um, that allow you to express some things if you're willing to take that risk. Um, so, yeah, I do think people are getting away with it. When I was at Goldman, you know, I would probably consider myself <laughs> the small five to 10 percent of people trying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't last very long. <laughs> so who knows <laughs> if that's a reflection? Um, but there but I do think there were, you know, even uh, I'm trying to think of some of the bigger guys like a Dave Solomon. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that guy used to wear some of the most beautiful suits. Um, they weren't necessarily the coolest tailoring I've ever seen, but he was I feel like he was trying to push some things. Yeah. Um, the guy that I think is taking over for, was it, is it Lloyd Blankfein? That's the, the new guy that's also a DJ on the side. That right. guy was trying some things back then. And <laughs> Lloyd actually was one of the first to show start showing up with Scruff right. on a regular basis. Yes, yeah. So the needle has certainly moved since since our days. Definitely. Being, you know, with the, with the big institutional organization. Um, in terms of menswear brands, who do you see designing well for this shift, acknowledging service professionals mm-hmm. and others who, who traditionally want to look professional, but, but pushing those boundaries? That's an interesting question. I feel like the older I get, the less I pay attention to designers and more I pay attention to just like sort of functionality, comfort, and I sort of let myself be brandless a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually loved what Dario said about Filson last last podcast. Dario Calmes, yeah. who was uh, who was on a few weeks ago yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, 
But I would say one of my favorite things to do, and this is a very bit of the low side of my high-low uh, equation, is I really like Uniqlo and those people that sort of can take care of my sort of foundational pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another brand that I really like that fits this, but it's an accessory piece or a shoe piece is Doc Martin because okay. they make a range of silhouettes that allow you to have a little personality. But even the shoe I'm wearing today – I'm almost yeah. always in Doc Martens. I, and, and they do have that iconic uh, tab, yeah. which is a trademark. Exactly. Um, with the yellow and that somewhat iconic stitching, top stitching. I don't see it on what you're wearing right. today. Exactly. Well, let's flip into that. Let's yeah. flip into, uh, you know, the what are you wearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and to the degree you can tell me, you know, who designed it and what season is it, although you appear to be seasonless <laughs> seasonless uh but but have at it okay so today is interesting because i i don't have one designer piece on okay which is rare when i go to things kind of proves your point though. yeah yeah it kind of yeah. proves my point um I, so i'm wearing doc martin shoes they're mm-hmm. lace-up oxfords with almost no sort of detailing at all the the, yeah. the i think the sole is probably the most doc martin thing about it um all that is black. a blucher, though, my friend. That is, it is. Yeah. Oh, blucher. Excuse yeah. me. See, yeah. I, see, you're <laughs> see, you have the whole thing laid out. Um, correct a, me on a, the rest of it too. <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting distinction, but it's where the uh, you know and and well, I've got a monk shoe on, so that, that yeah, won't yeah. help. But but where the, the the two tabs that are pulled together by the laces are either above the vamp oh, of the shoe yes. or actually sewn underneath it. And in your That's case, an important distinction too. Yeah, yeah. The things that you focus on, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I have, you know, Doc Martens for shoes. I have on both Uniqlo socks and jeans. Okay. Um, the jeans have been uh, cut at the to the height that I prefer them to be. Yeah, they're and and left and left raw. On, yeah, yeah, left raw. Um, my uh, my pocket tee is Lands In, and my uh, chamois chamois shirt mm-hmm. is Ella Bean Classic. I have like okay. five of these in the closet. I'm yeah. Inspector Gadget of uh, the Ella <laughs> Bean stuff, right. and the uh, and the Lands In t-shirts. Um, and then I wore a Honduras hat that I got from uh, my trip with Carlos Campos to Honduras. Okay. Yeah, I see uh, that. We'll, we'll bring that into the shop yeah. before we're done. But and also a uh, Patagonia jacket. I do have one designer coat on top of the Patagonia jacket, and that is an assembly long coat. Okay. Um, so that's my that's my look today, and and the why to putting that look oh. together. I mean, obviously you were coming in for the podcast, yeah, yeah. but it's morning, so you probably have a number of other appointments. So why this ensemble? So this is essentially a variation of my uniform. My uniform is black jeans, black shoes, black t shirt, and then whatever coats to keep me warm for the day. Um, and today I was like, you know what? I'm going in for this podcast. I know it's on video. I've been I've been actually try, working on a sort of variation to the uniform, so I still don't have to think when I get leave the house. Um, but it but it adds a little bit of like, oh, he's trying today. Um, and so the the half tuck of the LL Bean overshirt, um, and then you know mixing and matching silhouette sizes like the Patagonia. It's the standard sort of Patagonia jacket everybody has, right. um, except a little bit more shiny. Um, and then the long coat to sort of break apart those proportions and have something that the wind takes away yeah. um is a little bit of a mixture did you thing bike in i know no, no. i no longer bike for casual stuff i because okay. i have the whole kit i gotta wear to gotcha. feel comfortable on the bike so i'm only exercise cycling now <laughs> okay okay um well let's pivot into your work behind the camera sure um you know you work with a lot of brands a lot of menswear brands mm-hmm. uh there is a perspective that comes out. Describe that process and and 
do you, is it intentional that that perspective comes out or is it just innate and because Justin Bridges shot it, it just ends up looking that way? That's such an interesting question because I think about this all the time. You know, I, I'm an educator on the side. I'm always trying to mentor people. I answer people's questions all day and they always ask me, how do you get, how did you get to that style or that way of shooting? And I don't know, you know, over overarching all of this is that I'm a problem solver. And so I think I fell into a style, but there's always sort of this line of variation through all my work where I'm solving somebody else's problem with my imprint. And so I don't know how I get to it. I always start off like every single conversation starts off with, you know, what are your pain points or what are we trying to achieve? What's the collection look like? What are the what are the sort of consistencies? What are the differentiations from other seasons? What's the mood? What's the vibe? And then it go it, it always follows through or flows through to the, you know, the shooting part. Um, but I always start with somebody else's problems in mind and how my take on the world or my take on the lens can sort of solve that problem for them. And I think that's how the style started to become defined as it's always a, I think my style is always a collaboration. It's never just me going, okay, this is how I see it. So this is how it must be. It's always, where do you see, what do you see? Because I want, I I really love the team aspect of the whole photography thing. Now, more than a couple of people on set, I start getting anxiety, but I love the team aspect of creative, creative strategy and creative, uh, you know, brainstorming. Mm Mm-hmm. I hope I answered the question. No, I don't no, know no, if no. I you got did the... <laughs> indeed. And you know, there's a lot that goes into yeah. it for, for people who, who, you know, I've been on set with you, you've shot me and you know, there's believe it or not hair and makeup, yeah. right? <laughs> totally. There's, there's a lot of lighting. Uh, and then that lighting can transform th- things completely. Totally. Uh, there's the stylist who's touching people up, making sure, you know, that, that things are staying where yeah. they should or, or being appropriately disheveled if that's what you're going for. Um, what is the difference between what you do as a fashion photographer versus a digital content, either strategist mm. or manager? I think that in both those worlds, there's a story to tell, but it turns out in digital content, the story never really ends. It's sort of the book that is chapterless. It's just, you're just stream of conscious because right. when you're doing digital content in a lot of ways, you're just, you're telling a brand story that, it maybe evolves over time, but the through line is always there. When we're looking at sort of fashion photography, whether it be a campaign, an advertisement, or just a lookbook for the season, it is very of the moment. So what, whatever's there's a, there's a marriage between whatever's happening in the diaspora, the cultural diaspora and whatever's happening for the designer or their interpretation of culture at that juncture in time. And then the brand element of that is there's the guidelines or the guardrails, which you don't want to deviate from, mm-hmm. but you have a lot more freedom of creativity. You can say, you know, what's really going on right now is high key light and, you know, uh, ugly, you know, like ugly fashion. This is a moment. Right. So let's style it up. Let's be maximalist. Let's do, and that could be this season and next season you could be right back to minimalism. Right. And that's, a, I think that's the big difference. You can really go all the way with the sort of dreaming that dreaminess of it. Yeah. Um, when you are approaching a fashion project, right? Everybody assumes the fashion industry is is glamorous, <laughs> right? And you and I, at very different ends of the spectrum, are, are very much in the weeds and the guts of it, and we know that's not necessarily true. Uh, any any just anecdotes from? 
either really, really difficult clients or <laughs> really, really difficult models or subjects? I mean, what is kind of the wildest thing that you've found yourself doing where you sort of pause and say, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, there isn't uh, – glamour is such a weird thing to, to think about because uh, I don't think I've ever really experienced it. I mean, you know, at the – I'll start off with the very positive end of it. You know, one of my clients is Kith, mm-hmm. um, and I was lucky enough to go to their last uh, fashion show, Kith Park. And I, I'm not really a big celebrity person, uh, so to say, uh, but I, I was sitting in the back row and in walks like LeBron, Kevin Love, Justin Bieber and his new wife. And, you know, there's there is that sort of mo- that's probably the closest to glamour where you have this moment where you're like, wait, I'm here. You know, I don't care about them, but it's just the idea that other people would have killed to have the seat. And that's sort of the most glamorous thing that I think I've experienced. But on the other end, I mean, you've, you guys have helped me solve some problems of non, non-payment, um, breach of contract. And right. I mean, that's, those are things that you have to, I mean, I have to think about somebody signing something before I can even sell a project to actually get into a project. And so those things, all the business stuff is, is although it's fun for me because I have the background, I can imagine it being like the most unglamorous thing ever. Um, I would say, I'm trying to think of like a good experience where, or not a good experience, but I, you know, I, I got my start um, in fashion by doing street style. And a lot of people see the street style pictures and they rom- they romance them. They're like, oh my God, you got to take a picture of this editor, or that editor. And like 90% of the time or 99% of the time, especially during winter when we're shooting people in like spring fashion or whatever, right. you're out there, it's 30 degrees, your gloves are barely helping. You're, I mean, you have to stand in front of the show maybe up to an hour and a half before it starts. You wait outside during it if you don't have a ticket. Um, in my early days, I never had a ticket. Um, and then you're then you're waiting for letouts. That's another hour uh, waiting outside the show. So you might be outside of a show for three to four hours, freezing to death, just trying to get that picture of the important editor for the season so you can either sell it or turn it into your client. That's painful. (laughs) That's like completely unglamorous. And then you take this this whole experience and multiply it by all of New York. Uh, I would do Milan and Paris. So at least four weeks of this stuff in the freezing cold. And so, I mean, that's probably one of the most unglamorous, but one of the highest touch points that most people get to see. Mm -hmm. Um, I've shot behind the scenes of fashion shows. And if you're not senior back there, you're getting pushed out of the way. Um, you're not getting the shot that they're getting <laughs> and yeah. most of the models don't look at you, you know? Right. Um, so, I mean, that's, there's that, I mean, and then you have the challenging clients, uh, you know, quite honestly, the people that pay the least want the most from you. Um, they want the most from your time and they want the most of your creative energy and output. Um, and that can be the most unrewarding work you'll ever do as a fashion photographer. And that usually happens starting out, but more so now it's the common experience because budgets in a digital world um, go down because there's so much more content to put out. Um, and so that is, you know, probably one out of every four experiences is probably a client that wants more than they paid for. They want licensing that they don't, they can't really afford to get. They want um, a couple extra looks or going to overtime without paying overtime. All that kind of stuff is so unglamorous, but it's just par for the course. Well, so when you discussed how you got into photography, it began as a personal passion project, which I, I share that too, although I'm, I'm far less gifted than you. And I think with the advent of the handheld device and the mm-hmm. iPhone, you know, everyone is a, is a photographer of sorts. How do you distinguish between your commercial jobs and your approach to those versus your personal projects? Yeah, great question. I mean, honestly, I do have a similar approach, but it's a, 
it, it's a little bit different. I don't have a problem to solve most of the time with my personal work. So like commercial work, I'm always worried about how does the client feel? What are they trying to achieve? How can we get this done? How can I make money? How do I keep my margins? I mean, there's all these like sort of business things that I'm right. always thinking about along with the creativity. Um, for personal stuff, I don't, there's no sort of impetus. I'm not rushed. I, you know, I set the date whenever I'm comfortable and I feel like I have the plan in place or mm -hmm. I have the team that I want to work with. I can really just let go almost. And that I find really fun. I get to work with creatives that I might not have been able to hire because I didn't have the budget or the concept wasn't right or whatever. Um, I get to really strategize around an idea instead of on how to sell something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really do enjoy the process of like, like fine tuning, like what models do we want to do? And I have this project called Our Faces where I'm actually just shooting regular, well, I won't, I won't want to call anybody regular, but just in general, just humans, you know? Right. Not, you don't have to be a model. You don't have to be this or that. There's no styling. It's just, hey, come in and show me your humanity. Show me your expression. And sort of in those sort of like free willing, free, you know, just freedom projects, um, I get to really just connect with people. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the difference is like, I can have a sort of motivation. Like I want to connect with people and I can create a portrait project out of that. Or I can say, Hey, I want to say something about the state of culture or the state of pol politics. And I can do something like that and not have to be pulled away from it because, Oh, there's not money there. Or, you know, this is a little too risque for our, our clientele or our demographic. Yeah. It's just like, Hey, this is out of my head. Yeah. And that's the fun part. Seeing that more and more on the runways as well, where you, often have non-traditional models mm -hmm. walking the runway. I, I still wouldn't say normal. Right. You know, often visually arresting people, but still not traditional right. models who are booked by, you know, through one of the one of the major agencies. A lot more street castings getting done these days. Indeed. Yeah. 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 Uh, which, uh, describe that process. So you're obviously involved in that process. Yeah. How does casting go about how much of the brand is involved in that and how much are you involved as a photographer? I think that it always depends on how involved the brand is, period. So like, you know, some brands have big budgets with creative directors and a whole department of people that are just focused on how do we how do we fine tune the aesthetics for this season? Some brands are a lot smaller where it's the designer is the owner, the finance guy, the everything, right? Yep. Um, and so I think that you know, you take a, a, a brand like uh, I'll bring up Kiffigan or, or even public school. Mm -hmm. um, those guys, Ronnie, Dow, Maxwell, those are kind of guys that love getting into the granular pieces of things, too, um, because it's their baby. It's like it's so special to them. So, um, you know, we did a street casting for uh, Kith Tommy Hilfiger. I wasn't involved in the actual street casting, mm -hmm. but I do. You know, I get to watch from afar um, and that can be kind of crazy because the bigger the the sort of um, the legacy or the the buzz around a brand, the more people are interested in the street casting aspect. Whereas like when you're casting regular models, you're just putting out the, hey, we're looking for this type of person. Send me what you have. We can review it in a port in a digital portfolio and then make our selections yeah. and then go for an in-person thing. Um, street castings are usually a lot bigger, a lot messier. There's a lot more to filter out kind of as if you put a job on LinkedIn right. and you're just like, okay, let's get rid of the first. Get you ready know. for the flow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, like I said, it depends on the brand, how involved they get. Um, I think there are healthier ways to do things. Like I think if you have somebody who is a lot more vague in terms of what they want, then they should be the least involved with the casting or right. involved in the creativity because then you just end up going around in circles. But even you have a team in place that is like, this is what we want. This is the idea. This is where we're at. 
then by all means, the more help we can get, the better. So your social media feeds, which you, you have a couple of them, one for your personal projects and your personal life and another for your commercial work. Mm -hmm. How do you approach populating each of those and have they, you are what in the trade we would call a, a perhaps micro influencer, just because you <laughs> don't have yeah. six digits yeah, or seven yeah. <laughs> digits to your, your followers, but you've got a healthy number. Uh, is that part of the business plan? Is that marketing for the business? And does the personal feed also inform that because it's, it's at the end of the day, still mainly photography? I would probably consider myself um, not a subscriber to traditional value system that's been created around social media. I don't actually care. <laughs> like I, um, I actually split my Instagram handles back in the day when, uh, Jill from Totokayo, she was the owner of Totokayo before need supply bought it. Um, she was like, I was asking her advice. Like I have this edgier portfolio that I want to get booked for, but I also don't want to miss out on making money for more commercial projects. And she's like, why don't you just split your websites in two? And so that got me thinking, oh, why don't I split my Instagram in two so I can have a place? Where, I mean, the modern portfolio is now on social media. I don't right. know how many people even look at my site. I've never looked at the numbers. I don't care. Um, but I feel like most people go to your Instagram first, get an idea for what you do. And then if they want to dig deeper, they go to your website. Yeah. So my personal website or my personal Instagram, it went from like, oh, I'll make this personal or I'll take away the fashion components of this. And, but I, but then it was unmotivating me for me to use it. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to stay on Instagram, I need to find purpose and you know, everything I do down to the clothes I wear, they have to have a purpose. And so I actually, the personal Instagram, I put pictures of my girlfriend or something we ate or whatever. But the purpose that I've derived from that is educating people on finance. It's a part of my life that I actually still enjoy, but it's also a part of me that I don't want to atrophy because if I have something I can give back that is, I mean, to me, that's what the platform should be used for. Not just mm -hmm. endless, mindless sharing of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I use the freelance kills to educate people on their entrepreneurism, the small business aspects and finance. And then the buy bridges section of it has been and I, and a, a place for me to share and give credit to people that I've worked with, mm -hmm. show, you know, clients that I'm proud of the work we've done together and, you know, just, sh just share the work. And, yeah. and that I'm on much less. It's more of a curated, it's like, okay, this project, these three, photos mm -hmm. or this layout um so i do have to be a little bit more in tune with it and then the freelance kills i just as i as i want i just you know up oh, my girlfriend and i went on a trip here's a cool picture from the trip i don't yep. think twice about i don't get any validation i don't care <laughs> yeah yeah well so to to those that do care yeah, right? yeah. to those that actually have formed a business model mm -hmm. around it and now i'm speaking of influencers you yeah. know capital i uh, what do you think about the influencer economy? Because you've undoubtedly shot them. Yeah, you've undoubtedly yeah. recognized from time to time this person is not a model. I, yeah. I'm, I'm now having to re direct a lot more than 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 normal, or or not. You know, yeah, some depends. of them yeah, I'm depends, sure are gifted. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that? And specifically within the realm of fashion and how fashion has quite a bit latched on to right. the rise of the influencer to 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 judge up their brands. Yeah, I mean. I think when I got into fashion, uh, 2009, 10 brands didn't want to give into this influencer wave right. and then it just took them over. Um, I've been on the, I've gone the whole roller coaster where I've gone from like, Oh, I want to be part of this world to, I want nothing to do with it to, I think everybody that's a part of it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And 
I've gotten to a point now having worked with them, shot them, have been part of my projects that I, I now understand like any other business, it is, it is hard work. The, the ones that are truly killing it are putting so much effort and time into it that they almost don't have a personal life outside of that work. And so I respect it a lot more than I used to. Um, getting back to your question though, uh, influencing or influencers, it's an interesting world because it's essentially that whole model where somebody would get a tattoo on their arm from a brand to get a, you know, a, a, a perpetuity or a, whatever that's called uh, for the rest of their life or something. It's right. kind of that, um, but in a very, in a classier way right. um, where, you know, it used to be, you would, you might hawk one product or two product every once in a while, but most of it would just be, what am I wearing? What do I like now? Every other post is something they're getting paid for. So the world, so infl I don't even, I don't I don't even know if influencing is a is a fair word. Um, I don't. There are some people that drive commercialism. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think a lot of people now see through to what it actually is, and it's you know basically targeted banners <laughs> of, of people that are that you can actually relate to better than the people that they pick for the campaign or the mm -hmm. the advertising thing. Um, I don't know if I've. I, I feel like I have more to say here. Can you rephrase some of that question? Well, to or maybe I will ask the follow-up mm -hmm. because I described you as a micro-influencer. Oh, right, right. And I am seeing more and more interest amongst brands to micro-influencers because of their perceived, they're not as, look, Kim Kardashian, she is a mega influencer. Yeah. She is a personal brand and, and you will pay her her rack rate for, for tweets or, right. or posts or Instagram story. Uh, someone with, 11,000 followers, they're maybe more organically oriented to your brand totally. and they may have 11,000 engaged, very specific followers right. uh, in something like deep sea fishing. Right, right. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. so what do you think about that yeah. as, as far as, is that an answer to the mega influencer being too impersonal and now you've got to find this sweet spot of mm. someone who is a micro influencer. That's fair. I think that that is the right question, but I don't know if it tackles the actual symptoms. So I'll put this another way. I think that capitalism drives the true value of the influencer out in terms of how it affects how they actually influence people. So for instance, like me, if you consider me a micro influencer, the value that I add to the consumer that's just following me and wants to know what I'm doing or what I'm buying or all that kind of stuff, the true value of me comes from not oversubscribing to getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, that's why the engagement that I get or the amount of people that actually slide into my DMs to ask really specific targeted questions about something I'm wearing or whatever, those people are truly the people that you want to hit. Not the people that just blindly like my photos because I have 11,000 followers so I must be cool or because I look like I had a great trip or whatever. Yeah. Um, and whether you're a mega influencer, 100,000 or more, I don't even know what me where mega starts, but if you're a million <laughs> to 100,000 or whatever, all those people are great and, they're, and they are one thing I do like is that even though they might not be giving the engagement of a purchase, they are, they even make me aware of things I didn't know were out there that I might be interested in, right. which is the true, uh, I think the true cool thing about it. Um, but the minute you start selling everything on your feed is the minute you just become like everything else. Right. And so I think that's the line of demarcation, not necessarily whether or not you have 11,000 or 200,000 it's, 
do I sell you everything I do or do I really give you the stuff that I think is truly special? And that's the danger of sort of sliding into the big followerships. Yeah, yeah. Well, hand of the law is micro, micro. (laughs) But uh, I get engagement through Instagram and Twitter that leads to clients. Definitely. I mean, uh, it it is not your grandfather's law firm marketing plan. Right. (laughs) But it actually works. Yeah. um, Which is is very interesting. Well, the question becomes, like, where do you want to derive? To me, it's like, where do you want to derive your business from? And the thing that's really cool about a law firm doing stuff like social content is that you're, you're not looking the, you're looking for the derivative of it. Not the like, Oh, you found me on Instagram. So now I can sell you for a $500 post, right? right? Like you're actually driving people that actually sees the value in your legal advice or, or consultation um, to come to you. And that's different to me. So like, but if you're hawking, if you if you took whatever you're doing and you grew it to 100,000 and then finally you decided, let's monetize this, that is what cheapens your value to right. me. And I think you can be you can be Kim Kardashian. And if you decide to not sell everything, that makes you so much cooler in my book. Um, and I think that helps you retain that authenticity. I mean, John Legend, for instance, he's huge. He's yeah. a huge uh, celebrity. He's been around. He's had the staying power. Him and Chrissy Teigen have had amazing staying power. But I don't. They, they don't. They haven't cheapened their their brand value because they don't. They, I don't see them selling me something every five seconds. The content is what's king. You, they keep me interested because they're funny, they're witty, they have great experiences together. That's cool. Yeah. They don't monetize at all, uh, but they're getting paid in the background for sure. You yeah. know, obviously. Absolutely, <laughs> and they're both doing quite well. Yeah. I, I would imagine for people at that level, it's also a great place to engage with fans totally. because it is mostly safe. Right, right. right? Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure you have. I, I've been on feeds where all of a sudden someone's getting flamed or something's right. happening where you're just getting way too much. You yeah. look down and, and you know, it's it's moving. The yeah. likes are moving or the, the comments are moving right. at, a, at a rapid pace. And that's that's a bit of a weird out. And I imagine that happens for those those huge accounts. Um, a, a little shift. Yeah, we, yeah. You know, we, we talked about uh, clients like public school, uh Brands like Off White, mm-hmm. right? What what Virgil has done there? What what other new emerging designers are doing in the fusion, and in particular for menswear, between a more casual approach mm-hmm. to dressing uh, and a more tailored approach? There. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a quote yeah, from please. Kirby. Yeah, yeah. Jean yeah. Ramon. Uh, you probably know it. I just want to know what's being called street. The clothes or me. So my question is, does the fact that many designers in the spotlight as head of streetwear brands, right, or, or urban brands, diminish their accomplishments as designers? That's a good question. I mean, if we could, uh, if we could actually answer the question he posed, then I think we would know. Yeah. I, I think that that one's a hard question to parse nowadays because, because streetwear is so on trend that it – the, the places that it would actually take away their credit is in the inner circles of what we experience on the, behind the scenes. The consumer thinks somebody like uh, Kirby, Ronnie, uh, public school, all these uh, uh, Teddy Santis of Ame, Leon Dore, mm-hmm. the, the, the consumer thinks these guys are the gods. They think that these guys are doing incredible work. Um, but the consumer is not that referential anyway. So, you know, 
to them, whether they call it streetwear or not, I think they respect and acknowledge their place in the market. I think where that question is way more sensitive and way more cutting is if people like, uh, you know, uh, Vogue and your Harper's Bazaars, your your GQs and all those people are looking at these brands, calling them street as a way to sort of separate them from being part of the the, the true design diaspora, um, right. the relevant names. Um, so so like even I can't answer that as a black man too. I when I started as a photographer, one of the things that I was very conscious about, whether subconscious or or overtly was that I wanted to make sure that I positioned my photography when I switched out of street style to a place where people could relate and acknowledge that I wasn't just going to be the urban guy or just shooting, you know, I, I didn't want to just shoot cut and sew hoodies. You know, I wanted to right. be able to participate in the true conversation. And so a lot of my early decisions were to avoid certain work or to work with predominantly Caucasian models a lot of the time and just try to blend in. Mm-hmm. Right now, streetwear is standing out because it's it's saying, you know what, forget the traditional norms and, and memes of a society, of the GQ that, of yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're going to just confront it and do us. And it seems to be working. And so I don't, I, I don't know if I would say that calling it street belittles it. I don't know where streetwear originated. I know it you know, obviously we probably, it probably deserved to be called streetwear when it was. And that name stood stood for so long that it just made it into the fabric. I mean, yeah. FUBU, Carl Kanai, Baby fat. Nobody's nobody ever would have argued that that wasn't streetwear and that that wasn't an appropriate label. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, there's a, to me, it's it's a bit of a fusion between what was maybe termed hip hop, mm-hmm. right? And street, in a way, came out of maybe more skater culture, right? Right. Which skateboarding is urban. You gotta it's, yeah. you gotta have paved. Right. You know, <laughs> you, you're not doing that in Indiana, yeah. in the country, you know, in the wheat fields, but but. It, it, it's 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 been conflated it's it's it now is virtually a meaningless term right it is uh, yeah. but it is a misleading term when applied to tailored clothing right right so when i see certain items that i would see in brooks brothers if i if i was shopping brooks brothers perhaps maybe yeah. with a different cut and it's it's labeled urban i mean maybe it's truly urban right because a lot of men in in, right. in, in the city wear suits but i know what i'm being fed a little bit by mm-hmm. that urban moniker and it's it's not intended to commit convey sort of a uh you know a london german street or totally. you know so yeah. so there is a little positioning there which you're right. It is on trend right now. So maybe people are just appropriating yeah, it yeah. and saying we are street. Yeah. And I think urban is a much more tricky word than streetwear to me mm-hmm. because, you know, you're right. I think you connect this word streetwear to a hip hop culture that also swallowed up a lot of things, fashion, music, blah, 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 uh, graffiti, skating, all these things. And the streetwear moniker stayed around because and not in a not in a, I think, a defeatist way, but it sticks around because the originality is the, the origin point is streetwear. It's made for the guys that wore the Tims and the whatever. Mm-hmm. And although that man has progressed and changed a bit, um, it's still stuck around. And this is probably what Kirby's talking about, because in a sense, those designers that came from those worlds didn't have the traditional background and design or any of those things. 
I've often looked at fashion and I've separated those worlds, not without calling something streetwear, but somebody that went to school or had a, a, a much more referential design aesthetic. Um, I've always valued above somebody that just was like, I'm going to figure it out um, unless they just ended up being genius out of the box. Um, and so that's what separated my worlds. But I never took away if you ended up like I'm a self-taught photographer. If you if you ended up becoming a designer because you just every day were in the lab, just putting things together and making it work and it and it came out beautifully. But I, I, I just never thought that things that were sort of denim focused or hoodie focused or any of those kind of worlds where the street word street wear term started deserve the same sort of juxtaposition to Adamir Doma and Demila Meester, any of that stuff. And not because they were white, just because there just was a lot more one deserved to be in a museum and the other one was a consumer driven product. Yeah. And so that was my distinction. When you say the word urban, that's the one that you know, I, you start to feel a little bit because yeah. you know they're not talking about the urban guy that's on his way to work riding the metro with an umbrella. Exactly. They, you know, they're, yeah. they're talking about a certain type of person. And so that's the one that always gets me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, slightly hackneyed question. You've probably been asked it many times. What for you is the difference between fashion and style? Mm. That's a good question. I, uh, because for the longest time, I thought it was very obvious until social media started and I realized people don't have, I mean, everybody's changed the definition of things. Mm -hmm. um, I think style is how you take fashion and apply it. Um, fashion, uh, it, it, fashion comes from um, a legitimate heritage of study and, uh, and, and design and production and personality and putting all those elements together to produce something that somebody can look at and say, and interpret in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it, it's clothing based. Um, but style is how you apply those different fashions, whether they're on the runway or not. I actually will take this a step further and say, I don't like, we've stretched the word fashion really far. Like the, I think there's a difference between fashion and clothing. Where, you know, when I go to Uniqlo, I'm not looking for fashion. I, they can participate in the fashion world all they want. I hope this doesn't ever preclude me from getting a job. But they're, they're participating in the fashion world, but they're just selling me a product. Mm -hmm. That's not – there's no referential design. There's no studied overtime thing there. There's nothing artistic about it. It's how do we make shirts that people can get in for an affordable price and yeah. we make a lot of money while doing it. Yeah. That's clothing. If you're, if uh, you know, you're part of the Antwerp Five, that's that's fashion. Yeah. Learning how to drape, even if you never make a dress in your life, or, you know, you you go on to do something different. I think for for me, and this is very um, self fulfilling or self. This is a selfish way to define it, but fashion to me has to come from some sort of um, root in study. Otherwise, I otherwise it, I guess. To me, it's just like you're producing clothing to sell. It's just pure commercialism. Yeah, yeah. Well, and basics and more fashionable items can, of course, be worn together. Right, That's, totally. You know, and, and, and for some, that is the highest point of style. Right. <laughs> in that they can show up in an old Navy T-shirt but have – you know, something from Rick Owens over it and it just, it all oh, blends yeah. together really, really nicely. So it's interesting. One of, one of the things that you uh, spoke about, which marries both your background as, as a disciplined uh, financial uh, <laughs> advisor uh, and the fact that you have gone out on your own, you have a small company 
uh, you employ people, but when you started, it was just you. Yeah. Uh, is that you use your social media to put forward uh, some courses on really being a independent contractor, a consultant, and how best to set up not only your business, but but perhaps plan some of the financial uh, elements of your life. Can you can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I found myself um, maybe, I guess we're like probably five years into Instagram or something like that, but I found myself, you know, last year hitting a spot where I'm like, I'm not really enjoying just posting for the sake because they, I was told I need to. Um, and I, and I've always wanted to bring something out of my past finance, obviously, um, to the forefront because I'm, I'm more than just a photographer. I'm the amalgamation of my experiences. And if you enjoy something, I think you should do it. And you know, it makes you happy. You should keep pushing it. And so, um, so I decided, okay, let me convert my Instagram from just random noise to, uh, something that could actually do something for others. And so I started hosting, like I try to do it once a week. Um, but I started hosting basically, a, uh, ask me anything around, you know, fi- personal finance, investing, um, and small business entrepreneurialism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it, and I, much to my surprise, I would at least get three to six questions every single time. Um, and it's always a range, like, what do I do around taxes or what, how do I even get started investing or how do I save money? Just random questions. And I try to answer everybody's, whether in the DMs or publicly. Um, and that filled me up so much that I was like, okay, I should take this a step further. I've been a Skillshare ambassador for the past year. I teach um, sort of their bigger uh, photography classes. And one of the hardest things about putting content out there is distribution. Mm-hmm. And I knew that my Instagram my, being a micro influencer is very limiting. And obviously, and also on that front, you know, not everybody feels comfortable asking finance classes, uh, finance questions. Yeah. They're, they're so personal. And so they, they reveal something of you when you ask them. And so I knew I was going to need some other fulcrum in which to get people to actually pay attention so I pitched the Skillshare. What if we did this? There's such a thirst and a hunger for this information. And they said, you know what? That's a great idea. And it might be kind of interesting to have somebody that was fo- solely focused on one creative aspect be so well-rounded and teach somebody the whole genre uh, or the whole landscape of like how to succeed as a business person. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to be doing that. I think we're planning in March and hopefully release something, our first class in finance this year. Um, and it, it just, it just feels so good to be able to give something that I, that somebody paid me to learn, you right. know, essentially right. and give somebody sort of the keys. There's no cheat codes to this stuff. It's not sexy, yeah. but it, but it, but to have somebody, I'm quote unquote air quoting, uh, cool. Somebody that people would consider cool, teach them something that is so esoteric or so boring or so personal. Maybe it's an opportunity to open people up and get them excited about something they wouldn't normally be excited about. And just recognize that you too have to deal with it. Right. You know, there is, it's, it's rare that you get to the point where uh, my manager handles that or my agent handles that. And candidly, if you're doing that and you don't know anything about it, you're probably losing money too. Yeah, you're losing money. You're paying too much. So, well, thanks for that. And that, that will show up where? Is that going to be on Skillshare? Yeah. So the first class will be released on Skillshare. Um, I still, obviously, if anybody's listening uh, that like, that wants to know more about finance, I'm still doing Ask Me Anythings on Instagram. So if you follow Freelance Kills um, on Instagram, you can always, uh, you know, stay tuned for an Instagram story when I post and it'll say, ask me anything about your personal finance or whatever. And feel free to throw me a question. It can be hard or easy. I'll research it if I don't know the answer. Beautiful. <laughs> um, last question for you. Sure. When you are just really suiting up 
yeah. and trying to look very proper. Who is your go-to designer for those <laughs> those evenings out with the girlfriend dressing to impress or, you know, big, big meeting where you know you got to be in a suit and tie? I, I mean, I have – I'm incredibly sort of specific to the designers that I really like, and I, I'm kind of one of those guys like a – a man of repetition or I do the same thing over and go. So, so once I find something I really love, it's hard for me to deviate from that. Yep. So like if I'm dressing up, um, and I, to the nines and I really want to show, I, I, here's a statement here. Um, it's usually a mixture of, um, of Rick Owens, um, Damir Doma, silent or, uh, silent, um, by, is it silent Damir? I can't ever remember who's bridge Damier. brands or yeah. what. Um, <laughs> but Rick Owens, Damir Doma, um, Yoji, uh, if I can, I mean, I, I wish I was shopping more, but I also have a my eye set on uh, retirement. Those Goldman paychecks <laughs> oh, are man, over. No, for they're us. all over. Yeah. So yeah, trying to figure that out. But uh, I mean, I love. I this goes back to the style question. Like I love putting things together that don't seemingly go together. Uh, to make the statement so that somebody does talk to me because you know everybody loves that validation of like what are you like what are you wearing what do you have on that's crazy I've never seen that silhouette or blah 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 yeah. um, and so but Rick Owens is uh, every time I go to Paris I buy one piece at least um, he he has an ability to make me stand out without having to wear the whole uniform which I love I don't want to be a Rick Owens, like cult right. follower, yeah. um, Damir Doma, the shape of the pants. The, I mean, if I could, if I brands that I wish I had in my closet that I would marry to the um, the Rick Owens vibe is Jill Saunders, original Jill Saunders, yeah. um, Andy Mulemeister. I mean, all those guys. You know, uh, Dries Van Noten. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love all that stuff. I, I don't know if necessarily have the frame to pull it all off, um, but yeah, those are the things I would wear yeah. to dress up. And if I have to wear a suit to like a wedding or something, because I'm no longer wanna, I don't own suits really. I'll buy like a quick suit supply suit. I hope okay. that doesn't make me look bad, but I think that they make really cool stuff for your one-off occasions. They make good stuff for going to the office too. If you don't want to spin off. No, they they've been. Uh, I mean, we have a, a partner here at HBA who is Dutch, who we've done a little work for suit supply, and yeah. the value proposition is it's, certainly you there. You can't question it. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's, for six hundred to eight hundred dollars for a suit, I'm going to wear four times a year. Yeah. I, I'll always love beautifully tailored suits. I mean, there's just no way around that. Yep. And the way that they make you feel when they're on. Um, but I'm not, I'm past the time of spending three to five grand for, <laughs> for a suit. <laughs> well, they, you know, if your body doesn't change, they, 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 last, they, they yeah. will serve forever. <laughs> um, you know, and if you go with a lapel width that isn't too wild in any yeah. particular direction, you're generally safe. Totally. Well, listen, Justin, really awesome to have you in here. You know, it's like your second home. Yeah, you, definitely. Here so yes, I'm here a lot. <laughs> uh, but uh, thanks for your time. Uh, I, I will get you probably your second copy of the Laws of Style since, uh, since wave it in, yeah, yes, but, please. Uh, but we'll get you that. And, and listeners, you too can obtain a copy. You can go on the American Bar Association site uh, to find a copy, or probably easier and I think candidly cheaper at this point, go on Amazon, put in the Laws <laughs> of Style and Douglas Hand, and it'll pop right up. Uh, thanks for listening, and Justin, thanks again. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish. <laughs>